At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. There's a namelessness about football. You have your star players, but... Nobody knows who the offensive linemen are. Even if they're Hall of Famers, you don't really know who the offensive linemen are. You don't even know what they look like. Mm. You know, like you, you basically watch numbers on people's backs and you see where the ball goes and how people get hit, but you don't really know. And that's very American. That's how war works. That's what we're told is good about America. It's beer and it's capitalism and it's violence. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast, brought to you by The Nation. I'm Dave Zirin. We got a hell of a show. This week, we are talking sports and comedy with comedian and Mets fan. Those things, I think, go together very well. Hari Kundabalu. He's also the host of the amazing podcast, Politically Reactive, with W. Kamau Bell. We also have some choice words about the U.S. women's soccer team. We got a Kaepernick watch and a dramatic rendition of the Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award with Edge of Sports co-producer David Tigaboo. But first, let's get it started with Hari Kondabalu. Hari, one of the things we have in common, of course, is that you are a Mets fan. I am a Mets fan. We could talk about the season, but I find it much more interesting to ask you the roots of your Mets fandom because it's so easy to be a Yankees fan if you have any New York connection we choose the Mets for very personal reasons. Why are you a Mets fan? Well, I, I should be honest. Like Initially, I was one of those fans who, and I still kind of am a, a fan of both because they're in different leagues, but interleague play really kind of shredded that. Yes. Because there was a time where like they, they would only meet in the World Series, and at that point you have to make your call. But like now it's, it's, it's a little less special. Um, but yeah, I certainly like stuck with, uh, you know, I, I, I like both teams, and I stuck with the Mets during the, uh, the uh, Jeff Torberg, Dallas Green regime, Anthony Young losing 27 games in a row, Bill, you know, Bill, Bill Pulsifer, Paul Wilson, Isringhausen, and that didn't work out. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> great names, though. Great pulls yeah. on your part. 
And so, I mean, it, it's, you know, I definitely, you know, I, I loved the Yankees as a kid too. And I certainly was, I got to watch that dynasty, but there's something about the Mets that's very, like I'm from Queens, so there's, there's that immediately, but there's something about them that's very, is painfully human. Um, even like the fact that they lost a ton of their money to Bernie Madoff because they don't know how investing works and they just gave all this mon- money to Uncle Bernie and it was a terrible mistake. There's something human about that. You're just like, of course they're the ones who got, out of the two New York teams, they're the ones who got scammed. Of course. Or the, or the Bobby Bonilla they're, contract. They're vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Like signing a bad deal and Bonilla gets paid for the next 30 years. Like was it $1.3 million a year? Like all these things for a big market team that has the resources, the fact that they can constantly do stuff like this, like it's a, it's very infuriating. But I'd imagine it's somewhat like how uh, you know Brooklyn Dodgers fans felt. You know, this, it's a it's a little different because the money's different, but the idea of losing every year, mm-hmm. and you know whether it's it was great, and you know they lost to the Royals, and that was frustrating. The World Series, like you know, there's also the the history of like you know the the Beltron looking at strike three or the collapsing two years in a row, like in the final. Like these are things that only happen to the Mets. And I think it's, it's because of that. Like you kind of are like, all right, it's, it's, you have to be a real fan, I think, to be a Mets fan. Yeah, and you, know, I get worried sometimes that you and I are part of this last generation that are even going to be baseball fans. Um, your, your uh, you know, younger relatives, uh, friends who've got kids are are they into the sport? No, no, no. I feel like we, we, we <laughs> I mean, honestly, I love baseball, but even I, like, you know, I connected with my mom by watching basketball. Like, we watch basketball together, and I've gotten more into basketball of late just because, like, I can connect with her about it because she just loves watching the Warriors. She loves Steph Curry. Baseball is so slow, and it feels so impersonal in a way. Um, I like it because I like the, you know, I know it's weird, but I like the pace. Mm. Sure, it's bo- sometimes it's extremely boring, and there's no denying that. And innings like like three through six, especially like where what's happening, where's this going? Um, but like to me, like uh, there's nothing more that play that ended uh, like towards the end of that World Series a few years ago where. Uh, you know, um, Alex Gordon hits it into the gap, and there's a couple of errors, and it looks like Bumgarner was finally, like, hit, and there was a m- magic moment. Like, a moment like that, even though the Royals ended up losing, I don't think any other sport can give you that. Oh, yeah. No, no. There, there's not a sport that tears your guts out with a fork. Yes. Quite like baseball. No, no. And, I, and I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if that makes a good slogan for Major League Baseball or not. They need but, uh, something. I mean, I... I Baseball is also frustrating because baseball was ahead of the curve for a minute there, you know, with Jackie Robinson and the fact that that it was such an important moment, not just in sports history, but in, you know, in U.S. history, civil rights history. But um, then it it feels like they, they're resting on their Jackie Robinson laurels. It feels like that's where they left. And that's they always talk about Jackie Robinson. You don't care about gay rights, right? You don't. You you don't hear they keep talking about like the RBI program and big baseball to inner cities. I'm like that's not what people need. They don't need baseball. Like like if you really wanted to contribute, there's other things to do. Like it, it there's it's such an old white dude sport, which makes it hard. They don't even let you flip the bats for goodness sakes, or they'll throw a 100 mile an hour fastball at your head. Like the punishment is literally death. It's, for having any kind of flair. It's it's very like I mean it's very American militaristic. Like you did that, I'm I'm gonna hit you. 
I'm not even going to think about it. I'm going to throw this 100-mile-per-hour missile at your head. I mean, the, it, the Jose Bautista thing, that I still watch that oh clip my God. of him hitting that home run and flipping the, the excitement of that. You're telling me that we weren't supposed to appreciate that? Like, I, it would have just been a walk-off homer for a team that I had no investment in. And now it's something that I will always remember. Yeah, the people who mind baseball, it reminds me of that scene in the Kevin Klein movie, In and Out, where he's listening to the voiceover who says, like, real men don't dance. Real men have bad backs. Real men scowl. You know, and it's, there's just, you know, there's a lot of that. Joyless, joyless straight white manhood seems to run the sport too much for me. And I can't, I mean, and, it, and they're, they're in a, a bit of a culture war in baseball because they, there's all these players, you know, it's, it's a very Latino sport. You have baseball being more popular in other countries. And all of a sudden you have to deal with this very puritanical way baseball's played. And there are these strict rules and you can't flip and you can't do this or show any panache whatsoever. And you have players that do show emotion mm. and that, that, you know, have a different way of playing who actually are joyful when they play baseball. Like they like it. Like they act like they love the game. And it makes them happy. It makes them happy. And that's <laughs> an issue. And this is, this is old man. Like, it was the same thing between the major leagues and the Negro leagues, right? Like the Negro league players, like they had, they had fun. You know, there was all, there was, what wasn't it? What was that ghost ball? What was it called? Shadow ball. They played shadow ball for fans. They entertained fans like Satchel Paige. Some of the great stories were, were his showmanship. Mm-hmm. His showmanship was part of what makes him amazing. You know, Jackie Robinson was exciting because he would steal bases. There's always the threat of something, stuff like that. Like now it's, it's it's just it's for I mean in some ways the math part of it has made it somewhat worse sabermetrics in some ways has made it even worse like which seems strange to say but now it becomes even more mechanical it becomes even more soulless and this is the sport and you and I love this sport and listen to the way we talk about it imagine people who don't like the sport yeah, how I mean, they talk it, about it's it it's one of those things like whenever I get my Americanist questioned all I really need to say is I'm a baseball fan to me it's like you need to be a real, by opinion, you have to be a, like a, you have to really be an American to be obsessed with this stupid sport. Like it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous game. It lasts forever. The season's too long. Like whatever traditions they had, like numerically that I clung to as a child have been destroyed. Like, yet I still cling to it. Absurdly so. I still cling to yeah. it. And that's an American thing. It's our guns and religion right. to yes. go back to 2000. Yes. We cling to it. Um, you see, I've seen you live, Hari, a number of times, and I don't know how many sports writers you have in your audience, but when I see you on that stage, man, you look like an athlete to me. Huh. And I wanted to know if you were one in high school because you, you have a little bit of that, 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 that grace – you know, like 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 a little build up there, the way you move around. I'm like, this dude played sports. Now I don't know how right or wrong I am, but I've always wanted to ask you. That, that. is the nicest thing anyone's ever asked me. And no, I was a terrible athlete. I played little league baseball. <laughs> oh, man. I batted zero I'm a my third scout. year. Zero. I, I kept statistics. I kept very careful statistics of like my like my batting records and stuff. And I kept statistics despite the fact that I batted zero it was six walks <laughs> i scored three runs i it's not only that that zero I, I don't remember the number of at bats 
but it was like, let's say 57 at bats, 57 strikeouts. I did not put a ball in play that year. Like, so you were very, you're very wrong, Dave, but I appreciate it. But you had a good on base percent. No, I think I'm right because your on base percentage, as I worked it out in my head, was uh, very decent. So, by a sabermetrics perspective, you were great. I had an imagination. I remember the best thing I ever did in in, in any athletic endeavor at all was uh, that year I batted zero. I somehow ended up on base. I probably got hit with the ball, and uh, I moved over to second, which to me is even more stunning. I guess the ball must have been hit to the outfield because I was slow as all hell, and. Uh, I noticed that the pitcher took a lot of time, um, you know, between throws. He wasn't paying any attention to me. And I'm slow, so I'm I'm not going to steal it outright. But we were allowed to take walking leads that year, Little League. So I started taking a walking lead, and I I just kept walking. And by the time that everyone, even my team, like, noticed that I was, like, moving, I was almost down the line. And I ended up, like, sprinting the last, like, couple of feet, and I stole third by walking the best thing I've ever done in sports. Damn. Damn. So as long as we're talking sports, you know, I listen to Politically Reactive. You had a terrific discussion about Colin Kaepernick and the question of political blackballing. Yeah. And I I did want to ask you about your thoughts on where that is. We talk about it all the time on this podcast. And what does it say about the morality of the NFL that Colin Kaepernick is seen as some sort of distraction or detriment or they put him in the same sentence with people who've committed spousal abuse and I don't know murder I mean what does that say about the sport and are you an NFL fan let's start with the latter question uh I I I like football and it's it's hard to justify um because it's a sport that may become extinct or very watered down because it has to be because of the violence of it, because of the brain injuries that uh, we are learning about. Like, you know, some of it's not shocking. It's like discovering that smoking was bad for you. Yeah, intuitively, you kind of always knew. Um, so I, I'm, a, I'm a football fan uh, despite all that. I mean, it's, it's very much uh, an American sport, right? It, it, the militarism. I mean, I, I, you know, in your book, in your first book, um, why am I forgetting the name? What's my name, fool? You talk about that, and it's absolutely true. Like, there's a militarism in football. It reinforces what people identify as American. We're at war. We have to salute the the troops. You, know, you don't protest. You you're, you have to follow orders. I mean, George Carlin talks about the, the, the way we – an aerial strike, the way the language we use in football. We celebrate Super Bowl commercials. It's a celebration of – capitalism the halftime show the bomb the bombast of it like the week leading up to it is a media frenzy like all of these things you know it, it, there's there's a namelessness about football you have your star players but nobody knows who the offensive linemen are even if they're hall of famers you don't really know who the offensive linemen are. you don't even know what they look like mm. you know like you you basically watch numbers on people's backs and you see where the ball goes and how people get hit, but you don't really know. And that's very American. That's how war works. That's what we're told is good about America. It's beer and it's capitalism and it's violence. And so it's America. I mean, that's why people love it. It's America. On the flip side though, about offensive linemen, um, they're, 
the metaphor for one of the best phrases I ever heard about what makes a good ally in anti-oppression struggle. They say it's like being an offensive lineman. If someone is saying your name too much, you're do- you probably did something very wrong. Uh, that's, who said that? That's great. I don't know. I might have made, I might have made it up, honestly. <laughs> but it's, like, it's in my head. But I, but I might have made it up, but if I say I made it up, then I'm saying my name as an ally that's in great. anti-oppression struggle. So I'm doing it wrong. So, so some, some, I think, a person of color who's dealing with a disability made up that phrase. And I just you, can't you took it to know. their name. I mean, I think that, which is very American, um, but I think that Kaep- <laughs> the Kaepernick story, I mean, like, he goes against all those things. I and mean, even to begin with, right, people gave him crap about his tattoos, if you remember, like when, the year that he broke out big, you know, they, mm-hmm. th- there, was, there was always something about him that there was, you know, they were excited by his. His arm, his, his, his movement, like there was something exciting about him, but there was criticism even back then. You can't stand out in football. If you stand out, there's an issue. Football, the, the, post, uh, the, the, the post-touchdown celebrations were, were, have always been exciting. For years they've been exciting, and, they, and you get penalties for that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. something that actually is in the game. Like it's, it's, it calls for conformity. The fact that you know people play football and they get beaten up, and yet there's fewer guaranteed contracts, right? They get, you know, you can be easily replaced. Even the quarterback, the star position, can be replaced. I don't know how the Browns are managing to screw up every single year, but you can find you can find somebody to fill in a position and make the thing still work. So there's so many pieces. You're nameless in a way. Mm. And Kaepernick stood out. He put his name out there. He said things that people didn't want to hear. He took a stand by like kneeling. He he made sure you know he didn't want to be seen, but he did something different. He did anything different, so he was seen, and that that already breaks protocol. And then the things he was saying, that's not uh, you know that's that's not football's uh, mo. Like you, you don't you you support the cops, you support the troops, you support the American government, you. You just do what you're told to do, you know, like mm. that's, that's, you, you respect the head coach, you know, that's o- obedience as, uh, as somehow moral good. And Kaepernick knew, he said that this is, you know, he kind of suspected it. He played a great, I mean, that was the end of his career. He played wonderfully for a losing team with no support. You can't say he can't, people can't say he's out of the NFL. They say it, but it's bull. Like you can't say that he's out of the NFL because he played himself out. I mean, it's hard to me. It's hard to argue. He had he had a terrible team, and he still put up great numbers at the end of the year. Man, we got to get you and Colin Kaepernick in the same room. I would love to meet Colin Kaepernick. My God, I would love to have him on Politically Reactive. Good God, like Kamau and I talk about him. I mean, he's he's the first real sports idol I've had in a long time. Somebody I really respected. Yeah. It's been a while. It's it's it is interesting in that regard. Like this idea of people wearing his jersey as a political act. Yeah. And you see people wearing it to demonstrations. Oh my! Here in D.C., you see Kaepernick jerseys. I know people who. I mean, yeah. As a as a progressive, you know, and you talk about this in the book as well. Like sports is seen as this evil thing. It as an opiate. It's seen as something that is. Is, is not productive, just a distraction. And yet they're, and so a lot of our friends certainly don't like sports, don't follow sports, but they knew who Colin Kaepernick is. Mm-hmm. 
and they're on it. Like that's uh, stunning to me. That that clearly means that he's he's you know if, if the NFL wasn't NFL, they would actually capitalize on it, right? That's right. Because he's somebody who's brought them all these new fans in a weird way. But of course they're not going to. I mean, baseball and football have the same thing. That it's the same old white dude running it. That's why basketball is has gotten so much more interesting to me. And, and it's heartbreaking. I, you know, I love basketball, but like baseball is supposed to be my sport. It always has been, but there's, there's just something so empty about it. I mean, even something as stupid as like, I thought about this for years, but just like, how did Cito Gaston not get hired for another job? Mm-hmm. Dude won two hey, ju- world, just two world series. Yeah. In a row for Toronto. And he like, he only got another job with Toronto years later, you know, and he, and he managed there well, you know, and, and Willie Randolph, yeah, they collapsed a couple of years, but that was the lap before this recent, you know, few years with Terry Collins. He was, he was their best manager that they've had in a long time. Hmm. Like the team really after that collapsed again. I mean, like, and yet he can't get a third base coaching position. He was on. He was a, a, a Yankee. Won championships, and he was a bench coach, coach on those championship teams. And and it was New York. And you're telling me he can't get another job anywhere? Like this is this is no, it's, it's all it's collusion. This is how this is how those sports work. It's old white dudes calling the shots, and this is what they've decided. This is these people are no longer welcome for whatever reason. Damn. And everybody enjoy enjoy baseball season. <laughs> and I'm still looking forward to it. I'm hoping Mike Trout hits 80 home runs and cleans the book up. You know. And that's the crazy thing too, though. If Mike Trout walked into this room right now, we'd be like, "Hey, who the hell is this guy walking into the room?" I mean, the the anonymity of baseball. Yeah. That they promote. Yeah. So different from our day. Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden. My God, I'm now I'm sounding very old. Let's move on very quickly. <laughs> You know, Ari, one of the things about you is that you've got like this uh, grassroots following that's really intense. So I put up on Facebook, yo, anybody got a question for Hari? And I got bombarded by listeners of the podcast who wanted to ask like more more questions for you than I got for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm dead serious. Really? Um, Really? Yeah, I'm serious. People were more wanted to ask you questions than Kareem. And so I picked out like four of them. Can I ask you some listener questions, please? Of course, of course. And it went by telling me that, by the way, I assume that you have more non-sports fans than sports fans, because that's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, unless you have a sky hook you're not telling <laughs> us about. Um, yeah, it says, you're right, it says much more about my audience than you, <laughs> that they would have more questions for you than Kareem. All right, so um, this one, this is like a two-part question from Nicole Colson. It's quite good. Uh, it's just what she said. She said, the last time I saw Hari perform, he had a bit about how jokes about racism don't pay the bills. But his album was number one on iTunes, so maybe they can? And then she writes, seriously, though, what's his take on the fact that there seems to be a kind of comedy left that's increasingly visible? And what's your response to the people who say, oh, you must be really happy Trump got elected since it gives you material? Okay. Uh, well, first first question. Uh, my album hit number two. Uh, oh, on my it did hit number one. That doesn't really mean anything if you actually look at how much money actually comes in after the label takes a cut and how much production costs. Albums aren't big sellers, and also, you know, comedy albums are, are especially not big sellers. So you don't really need to move a million units to be number one. <laughs> so I, I will say that that's really sweet of you, and it has been a nice like 
additional source of income, but it hasn't it hasn't <laughs> it hasn't changed my financial status alone. So you're not the Adele of comedy, no. is what you're saying. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, Adele's not the Adele she could have been in 1995. Like you know, like people don't sell records. That is true, and that's fine. I'm, I just want people to hear my stuff, but still. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing. Uh, what was the second question? It was. Um, well, is you must be happy Trump got elected, right? That and the the comedy left. I mean, with the people Trump, do say that with the oh the comedy left thing is important, right? That's, I mean, that's important. Quick, do you do you see this developing? Well, I mean, so I'll start with the Trump thing quick. I think the Trump for me the Trump thing is because I've talked about issues that are fairly evergreen. You're talking about racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, privilege. Those are things that you know power dynamics. That those existed before Trump. The way Trump helps is that he's activated people into being more politically conscious. And as a result of that, like when Trump says something, it allows me to use that as a starting point, the news peg for the stuff I was going to talk about anyway. So if anything, he just makes, unfortunately, he makes oppression more in your face and relevant because he's blunt about it, which is new. Mm. Uh, in terms of the comedy left, I think there's always been that. It's looked different from era to era, but there's always been comedy as a dissenting force. I think the difference now is um, you know, there's the internet and it's easier for people to find them I and the gatekeepers aren't the same. So more people pop up, but there's always been, there have always been folks who, who challenge the status quo. And also what we define as the left now look differently in comedy in previous eras. Mm. So you'd have somebody who would talk about, you know, race a certain way and was transphobic, you know what I mean? But still was seen as part of the left, right? Like that's the left is not the same thing from era to era, especially socially. So I guess that's my answer to that. Man, that that gets right to this next question by uh, Muhammad Ali, who asked this question. Great name, Muhammad, by the way. Um, perfect for this show. And it's it relates exactly to what you just said because he wanted to know your thoughts about Dave Chappelle's recent Netflix special because I don't know whether you saw it, but there's so much in it that's not only left-wing but side-splittingly hilarious. And at the same time, there's like this transphobic stuff in there, and how how do you like separate art from artist and craft from politics when you see someone like Dave Chappelle? And have you seen the specials? I still haven't seen the specials because I I per, I mean I knew about those transphobic bits because he's been doing them the last few years, and uh, yeah, I really I hope he wouldn't put those in just because it seems a little tone deaf considering where we are, mm -hmm. you know. But he's a dude of a certain era. I'm not saying, you know, I know it sounds like, uh, well, he's a man of his time, but like he, I don't think he either doesn't think about that in a certain way. He doesn't have trans friends, or maybe he just, he has the point of view he, he has for a variety of reasons and he's not going to waver. Um, I mean, from what I know about those jokes from, you know, bootlegs or from reading script, I, it, they're not pleasant. You know, these are jokes that I know that like, He's done in other cities, and people have told me about being really upset and shocked. And it's like, you know, he's he's a full human being, and so mm -hmm. if you listen to even the old records, there's stuff now that I'm like, whoa, that is really misogynistic, and I, I didn't even think about it. But because the race stuff is, you know, so, so amazing. I mean, it people are complicated, and I think that you have to take the good with the bad and it's not to say that you should condone it. If you have the tolerance to put up with certain things without condoning it, I think that's, uh, you know, 
I think that's that's the thing. I and mean, whether you support the performer or not is another question financially. Um, but yeah, he. I mean, it, it's he's a really tricky person because he's also become this um, this kind of godhead. You know, he's become this not only this brilliant comedian, but someone who took a stand. He's known for that. Right. But at the same time, I think the response to that, you know, you, you know, of course you can be frustrated and upset, but I think it all, I think you have to then either create art to combat it or create something to combat it, or you support the people that are doing the work. There are trans comedians now who are doing the work. This is the first real wave of, you know, I think real public trans performers. And so maybe we should start looking into who are we going to bring up? Because ultimately people writing essays about, uh, you know, medium articles about like this, that's fine. But what's going to shape culture is more culture. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what ultimately we have to do. And again, I'm, I'm, I, I wish I had a clear answer to Chappelle. It, it's really hard. It's, you know, you can learn. I mean, the good stuff you get from Chappelle, though, is certainly inspiring. You can't take away that. People are inconsistent. Some people, you know, like you could be, have your heart broken in, in certain ways, in other ways, be uplifted. That's people. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not to justify it because you can't, in my opinion. But yeah, it's a wild roller coaster to watch the special because you f- flip from going, "Oh my God, I can't believe he's saying this," to "Oh my God, I can't believe he's saying this." But at least you know how he feels and who he is, and if he does get to a place where he feels differently. You know, that that evolution is interesting to watch, right? Because stand-up is something, unfortunately, and fortunately, is in the moment. It's where you are at that moment. But when it gets captured, I think people assume that that's the way you feel forever, and it's not. You know, Louis C.K. doesn't have the exact same points of view from the early specials to now, and that's because he's grown. Right. He's a human being. He's developed. I mean, that's, that's nature. So you'd hope maybe he feels differently in the future, and... You know, it's hard. It's hard because if he wasn't as great a comedian, there would be no discussion for a lot of people. It'd be like, oh, I'm not interested. With him, it's heartbreaking because you love him so much. Then the love is real. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's, and that's, that, that is what, absolutely what makes it hurt. It's not like, oh, asshole, switch the channel. It's love, and then it's like, ah. In a lot of ways, he was like comedian Muhammad Ali to me in a way. You know what I mean? Like he was the one that like oh, totally. he was really the champ. Like Louis C.K. had this crown for the time and Kevin Hart. But he's really the champ. And we were just waiting him to come out to get his get his title back. And that's what it always felt like. Totally. And he went to get his title back. And now all of a sudden it's it's not quite as clean as we thought. And it's interesting, too, because it's, sim- it's similar to Ali as well, because we sometimes build up Ali to this point where it's almost like he's from another planet, right. which then makes him impossible to reach and makes him impossibly inhuman. And we do have to remember that these are human beings. They're flawed. There is genius there. But they also – they don't exist on another plane from us. And so they have the contradictions that so many of us have. Well, I mean the stuff he did to Joe Frazier and you, know, you and I have discussed this you know, personally, just like kind of you know, the racial tactics he used to – to, you know, call Frazier and Uncle Tom and all this stuff, like, just to promote a fight, like, that is mm-hmm. that is pretty disgusting, and it's awful, and, and what he did to Frazier und- undeservedly, like, we can't ignore that, he's that guy too. Yeah, it's all there, and it's it's complicated, and it's also what makes it so fascinating. 
Uh, and it goes to this question from Troy Cochran. He said, God, you have, your fans know what you do. It's wild. He says, this stems from Hari's discussion with Bell Hooks regarding comedy. It's like he's referencing shit. <laughs> like, are, are there any kind of guidelines for deciding when to pull your emotional and financial support from comedians that you otherwise enjoy? I mean, you sort of answered that. I imagine everyone has their own template, yeah. their own line, their own decision. What, what, but do, do you have one for you? I don't. It's really hard to uh... – you know, I, I've never watched a Woody Allen movie, so that one's an easy one. And I've never seen a Roman Polanski film, so there's 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 another one. But if if it was an artist I loved, I guess it gets trickier, right? Sure. I, I don't know. I mean, and also, I mean, we're lucky in a weird way because we live in an era of like where like the internet allows us to openly steal art, which is not necessarily good, but it's the reality of it. So you can still watch things and listen to things without paying for things. Like, I mean, Chappelle stuff's on Netflix. Right. So on one hand, you could be like, well, every time you watch it, it, it's, it supports, you know, like, Oh, look, look how big he is. And I'll make him more money later. But on the other hand, it's like, you're, you're paying whatever amount for Netflix a month. You're already paying for Netflix. Exactly. And also like, I don't know, like the idea of boycotting Dave Chappelle, like I, I, I it's it's a decision one has to make for any artist, but to me, like I don't think I could do it. Mm. I think that he's too he's too valuable. He's too important. He's too like he's a hero. And and you would like to you would hope that one day, maybe he'll feel differently about that, and the you know he'll use his his gift and his weapon for something else with regards to you know transgender people. And the, I mean I. Uh, I don't know what that line is. I, I really don't. And uh, I, I don't, I think it's, you know, the one thing I do know is sometimes it's use, like, what well, I've seen Birth of a Nation. I've definitely seen bits and pieces of, like, Lenny Reifenstahl's propaganda, you know, Nazi propaganda. And both of those, you know, works of art and, you know, films are very obviously very troubling right mm-hmm. um, but they're useful because the the cutting style of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation was used for films later and film, and it was a foundational thing which led to people using these techniques to make art that wasn't like that that was counter to that you know was a response to that and the same thing with like the Nazi stuff like you're learning how to make propaganda but you're also learning the different ways to sh- shoot a documentary or, sh- or shoot film and that's going to be useful for you to, to, to co-opt for your purposes. So, you know, like there's certainly comics who said things when I was growing up that I didn't always like, and yet I still learned from how they did it. Just because a joke um, is, is is messed up in your opinion or is, is problematic or whatever word you want to use, it, it doesn't doesn't go with your, your conscience and your values, doesn't mean that it's not funny. That's actually the tricky thing. Like when something is like really messed up and funny, it's more, it's actually more impactful. It's more dangerous when it's funny. Mm-hmm. And so you can take that though and figure out what's my voice with these techniques. How do I take these ways of hiding things and use it for, for my purposes? At least as a performer, I can say that. So throwing out art when there's still so there's always a little bit of genius even in the most evil thing what can you take out of it what you just described i kept in my head flashing to to seeing hamilton 
huh. uh, which I got free tick. I got free tickets to, and it's like you know I'm, I'm a history head. My wife teaches U.S. history, and we're sitting there, and we know so much about who Hamilton actually was and who these other slave owners actually were. Right. And then you're seeing them lionized, and there's a pain in that, and there's a whitewashing that's painful. And then at the same time, though, you're seeing people of color spit these amazing rhymes yeah. and be inspiring, and it's like. You know, and it's like literally in in the last ten minutes, I've got tears running down my face, and I'm like, "This is problematic historically." But he's, you know, <laughs> but it's also like you know, I while seen, I'm so touched and moved at the same time, like you know, people of color were taking taken out of the history of this country, and in this way, he's you know, through the use of people of color as as the stars of the show, or like he's putting them back in, like he's making them front and center when telling the stories of. You know, the white slaveholders. That's that's. It's kind of powerful. It's an incredible, yeah, absolutely. And this is you know, Lin Manuel Miranda. Dude also made in the Heights. I mean, he has a track record of incredible art. So, you know, I, if anything, this is going to lead to him making even more like incredible stuff that he's not going to always have. You know, it's not going to always be uh, stuff about the founding fathers of this country. Yeah, and it's it is also it was fascinating to see on PBS an interview with they did this making of Hamilton and the incredible actor whose name is escaping me who played George Washington. Oh, my friend uh, uh, Chris Jackson. Talks about yes. Oh wow! And uh, please tell him he's unbelievably talented and thank you so much. He <laughs> he talked about like how really painful it was to play George Washington and like and and thinking about his ancestors yeah. and. And about like, okay, he says, I get that it's representation and I get that it's reclaiming, but that doesn't make it hurt any less. Right, right. It was, it was, it was very moving. I mean, I think that's, you know, it says a lot too, because it's a, it's a wonderful piece and it led to so many opportunities. But think about like the fact that there's so many actors that like, uh, actors of color that like have to make those calls that for for like pieces that aren't Hamilton. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, like I know... I mean, even like Randall Park, who's a friend of mine, who's this, you know, the father and fresh off the boat, you know, he had a lot of issues with the idea that, you know, he's Korean American and he was playing a Taiwanese American. And is that fair? But also in the, in the broad scheme of things, it's like, holy shit, this thing exists. This, this uh, Asian American family sitcom actually exists and I can contribute to it. So, you know, it's, it's still better than what, the options were before and it's pretty exciting my god he's another one who in my house can do no wrong oh my so, god yeah randall damn incredible. you got some cool friends dude my god i could tell you i could tell you about my friends it just wouldn't be as cool that i know this guy david true. tigaboo that is he's a cool guy true. i know who you know and that's <laughs> ridiculous now last one for you you've been insanely generous with your time amir kadir really wants to know what sport you would embarrass yourself the most at if you went out there to play. Oh, that is that what is would the, be the most humiliating. That is the one most of humiliating the great all-time questions. Um, I would imagine it's a because I think there's because like look if you play basketball you know if you if you like cherry pick you're gonna get something eventually in baseball every now and then you. You know, you don't, you're not getting the ball hit to you all the time. You have to bat. Maybe you, you have a decent bat or follow if you also look somewhat real. In football, if we had to play, I just kind of like hide. You're like, oh, I missed that play, but I'm in the field somewhere. Hockey and, and soccer, I think, are hard. 
I think those are two that, like, you have to know how to skate. Yeah. The constant falling makes hockey very embarrassing. People like people falling. And I think with soccer, it's just, I just could imagine the the embarrassment of, of using my hands when I'm not supposed to, <laughs> kicking people, getting kicked. The only thing I think that gives hockey the edge in terms of the worst is with soccer, I think I would enjoy the fake injury part and trying to get penalties. And I think that part, the actual acting exercise that's involved actually gives me something. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's probably hockey. I would imagine it's hockey. Yeah, you you flop in hockey, a skate goes over your neck. It just doesn't work the same way. Oh, no. No, Did you see that 30 for 30 short about the the goalie getting the jugular cut? Yes. Yeah, I mean. That was horrifying. That was like some Clive Barker shit. I mean. That was very disturbing. Me like trying to avoid any contact and slowly skating in the corner. With football, it's one thing, but with with, when you have ice skates on, it's just me getting hit and crying. None of it. None of it. We don't need any of it. I'd be too afraid. Because my answer as well would be hockey, this seems like the perfect place to end this interview. Hari Kondabalu, new season, politically reactive. It's already underway. It's everyone who listens to it, favorites podcast. Thanks so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Of course, Dave, man. Love you. Thank you. Love you too, buddy. Adios. Good man. That's Hari Kondabalu. Ladies and gents, we'll be back right after this. And now a quick word. We're so proud on this show to be sponsored by The Nation magazine, the oldest weekly magazine in the United States. And The Nation has another podcast that they promote and that they sponsor called Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts, hosted by John Wiener. A new episode is posted at thenation.com every single Thursday. They have a remarkable collection of guests on their shows, including Naomi Klein, who, by the way, just announced that she has a new book coming out about building resistance to the Trump agenda that will be out by this June. You got to listen to Start Making Sense. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It gets issued every Thursday at thenation.com, hosted by John Wiener. Remember, it's political talk without the boring parts. Now I got some choice words about the new contract just signed by the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and the broader context thereof. It is remarkable and remarkably unexpected to say this, but female athletes are now leading both the labor movement and the women's movement for pay equity. It's happening before our eyes and worth noting, even if you've never kicked a soccer ball or hit a puck. First, just last week, we had the staggering victory of the U.S. women's national hockey team, as we documented on this show, who went on strike before the world championships and won a series of demands, not the least of which was salary raises, so they are now paid like the full-time athletes that they are. Now comes news that the U.S. women's national soccer team has at long last, following public campaigns, lawsuits, and the outspoken expression of their most prominent players, secured a five-year labor deal with USA Soccer. The deal has much to praise, making long strides towards securing equal pay with the men's squad, fitting for a women's team that garners ratings during global competition that makes other sports leagues green with envy. It remedies the insult of meager pay and the injury of less rights than their male counterparts. While the deal does not ensure pay equity, which was the rallying cry of this long contract campaign, 
It does ensure raises that can pay players as much as 200 grand to 300 grand a year and includes victory bonuses. The deal also provides funds and support if women take leave from the team for either pregnancy or if they're adopting children, as well as increased per DMs, more say on their working conditions, travel, and accommodations. In addition, and this in time could be the most important part of the deal, the union won a portion of licensing rights, which will mean more revenue streams for the players. Look, this is a grand victory coming slightly over a year since a high-profile complaint with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was issued by the highest-profile members of the team, people like Carly Lloyd, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, Becky Sauerbrunn, and Hope Solo. On Wednesday, after the new deal was signed, Rapino told ESPNW, I am incredibly proud of this team and the commitment we have shown through this entire process. While I think there is still as much progress to be made for us and for women more broadly, I think the Women's National Team Players Association, that's the union, should be very proud of this deal and shall feel empowered moving forward. In other words, this is a step forward and a significant one at that. But it's also worth taking a step back and looking at these two victories by the women's hockey and soccer teams in the context of what's happening in this country. These are extraordinary times with an admitted sexual predator in the White House, rooms full of men making healthcare decisions for women, and a vice president who believes in LGBT reparative therapy, casting the deciding vote in the Senate to allow states to withhold federal funds for Planned Parenthood. We have women in the Texas State Senate wearing robes to work that are inspired by the Margaret Atwood novel of patriarchal dystopia, The Handmaid's Tale. This is the context for the U.S. women's hockey and soccer teams sticking together and showing the world both what solidarity looks like and what can still be won. Yes, both battles predate the ascension of Donald Trump, but they don't predate the poisonous sexism, the attacks on women's reproductive rights, or the endless violent and organized harassment of women on social media that fueled Donald Trump's rise. The idea that these women not only didn't give up after the election, but kept pushing should serve as inspiration to all of us. Women are currently the backbone of the resistance to Donald Trump. Labor needs to be on the front lines as well against an administration seeking to roll back even the meager rights that working people have. Perhaps these women in sports can be the connective tissue between the women's movement and the labor movement. I certainly never would have guessed that this bridge between the struggles could be forged by soccer and hockey players, but hey, guess what? Athletes really do hate to lose, and we could all stand to walk with a little bit of that swagger. I'll never forget former NFL player and union leader Dave Megacy, who once said to me about labor union struggles in sports, we're jocks. On the field or the picket line, we really, really hate to lose. Now a quick word about the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine, the oldest weekly magazine in the United States dating all the way back to 1865. People got to check out the new issue of The Nation. We're going to be talking about Donald Trump's war in Syria, the utter hypocrisy of the news media that's pushing forward this idea that somehow now at long last, this guy who lies about the weather, lies about his sporting prowess, lies about the size of his hands, lies about the Second Avenue subway line in New York City, lies about crowd sizes at his damn inauguration, is now somehow presidential because he lobbed 60 Tomahawk missiles at Syria a 
country whose refugees he is banning from coming to the United States, even as he creates more refugees through his military. These are frightening times. The Nation magazine is your compass through them. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. You're going to be glad that you did because we need to be armed with ideas if we're going to make it through the next three weeks, let alone the next three years. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. This week we're going to do something a little bit different because the Just Stand Up Award goes to NBA player Frank Kaminsky for speaking out on behalf of NCAA athletes and their right to compensation. And the Just Sit Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down, goes to well-paid college basketball commentator Dan Dockich. Not Dakich, Dockich. Rhymes with Jockich. And the back and forth that they had on Twitter about this. Normally, I would just tell you the story about what was said and what wasn't said. But this week, we're going to try to do it in a different way. A segment that I'm calling Edge of Sports Theater. Where I shall be playing the role of Dan Dockich and... One of the two producers of the Edge of Sports podcast, David Tigabu, will be playing the role of Frank Kaminsky. Ladies and gentlemen, before the play starts, I would like to apologize to you all. Remember, I'm Dan Dockich. Rhymes with Jockich. He's Frank Kaminsky. This is their tweet battle. NCAA. The only place 18 to 24-year-old athletes make $20,000 to $60,000 for 20 hours a week work. Only eight hours work in the summer months and are exploited? And now Frank Kaminsky responds and the following exchange ensued. You clearly have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Only been a player, coach, dad paying, but you're right. I have no idea. You'll grow up and understand someday. Son. Oh, right. Because when you played, people were making billions yearly off of college sports while telling you your image doesn't belong to you, right? Clown. Read my tweets. Who has said anything about image? BTW, your image without Wisconsin. All right, let me try that again. This guy is incoherent. Clown. Read my tweets. Who has said anything about image? By the way, your image without Wisconsin jersey is currently worth zero. Zip. Nada. Damn, I'm impressed that Dockage is bilingual. Must be wonderful to reap the benefits of kids working their asses off by sitting on yours and rambling about zero, zip, nada. Oh, that was a burn. I'm sorry, I'm breaking character just because that was so delicious. Dockage. Remember, rhymes with Jockage. After all the work I put in, absolutely. Not as good as working 20 hours a week, getting over 100K at 18. How much your likeness worth without Wisconsin? Working your ass off? Son, please. We had no restrictions on hours. You wouldn't know working your ass off if it hits you in the nose. Time out. I gotta just interrupt again. It's hit you on the nose. Hit you in the nose? Is he picking Frank Kaminsky's nose? That's not a phrase. 
LOL, yeah, okay. This just proves to me how uneducated on the topic you actually are. Because I got to where I was by putting in minimum effort at every single stage. Sound logic. Who could argue with that one? That's it? All you got? What I figured, keep complaining, the uninformed masses will believe us that no? How's that mean? Stay away. On Wisconsin, and you got paid handsomely at 18 to 24 for 20 plus hours a week, good for you. On Wisconsin. No, I didn't get paid. I left there with no money and still owed rent through my lease. Actually lost money. Glad I was good at b-ball, though. This point, Dockich shut up because he was getting burned so badly and people online were just roasting him from here to kingdom come and then Kaminsky did a numbered thread and this is what Kaminsky said one there might be a 20-hour restriction on college athletes that argument is complete garbage two I never asked to be paid when I was in college I just wanted to capitalize on my image slash likeness while my name was big three Education was a factor why I chose to go to UW, but basketball was always my priority. I can handle bad grades, but not bad games. Four, this may be offensive, but you cannot compare the lives of student-athletes to regular students. Lives aren't similar in the slightest bit. Five, if free education is the compensation, could I have turned that down and just played for the team? Bam. Game, set, match to Frank the Tank. And also, it's got to be said, Dan Dockich played in the mid-1980s at a time when coaches were making like 50 grand a year and players barely had to travel outside of their region of the country. It is an altogether different sport right now. Dan Dockich not only doesn't know what he's talking about, his condescension was actually, I think, used against him brilliantly by Kaminsky. Dan Dockich, epic fail, Frank the Tank, Twitter knockout. That's your just stand up and just sit your ass down of the week. And that concludes episode one of Edge of Sports Theater. And... As always, we have this week's edition of Kaepernick Watch, where we look at the story of Colin Kaepernick and his effort to get signed, as well as his efforts to promote social uplift. This week, two pieces of news. The first one is that one of the things that apologists for NFL owners always said about why Colin Kaepernick wasn't being signed was, Tony Romo has to be figured out first. That's the first domino that needs to fall. And then Colin Kaepernick will get signed. Jay Cutler will get signed. All the quarterbacks that you think should be on a team will be on a team. Well, guess what? Tony Romo's fate has been determined. He's decided that he does not want to play football anymore. Anytime a player does that, I always say more power to him. And he's joining the CBS booth. Frankly, I think it should be Amy Trask, but let's just leave it at that and say Tony Romo is going to be joining the main CBS football booth with Jim Nance. Hello, friends. That's my Jim Nance. But here's the deal. Romo's been signed, and Kaepernick still doesn't have a home, which just adds more and more credence to the case of political blackballing, which so many insiders say is taking place. Second point is that March, of course, just concluded a couple weeks back. 
And March is Women's History Month. And Colin Kaepernick, one of the things that he was doing, which was so cool, was putting out these messages on his Instagram detailing hidden parts of women's history. And one of them deeply moved me. We're going to play it right now. Sisters Mary and Carrie Dan are best known for representing the Shoshone Nation for more than 30 years in its effort to reclaim millions of acres of ancestral land from the U.S. government. The sisters claimed that their ancestral land was seized by the United States under the 1863 Treaty of Ruby Valley. In 1974, the U.S. Bureau of Land Management filed suit against the Dans, claiming they were trespassing on federal land. I demand for you to show us your superiors, or whoever it is, to show us documentation of Western Shoshone land transfer to the United States of America. The Dans and other activists subsequently won in court, which said that no act of Congress or treaty had ever transferred the land from the Shoshones to the federal government. Though Mary Dan died in 2005, Carrie Dan remains an activist for land and indigenous rights. Know your history. Women's History Month. Mary and Carrie Dan. That's all for Kaepernick Watch, and that's all for this week's edition of the Edge of Sports podcast. Reminder to everybody listening, we love all our listeners so much, but if you love the show, please go to iTunes, please go to Stitcher, please give the show a rating, make a comment. It makes a huge difference in how these sites promote the show. Please give us a call anytime, 401-426-3343, 401-426-EDGE. We love hearing your calls, and we also love playing some of the calls that you send to us. The question we have for you this week, straight up, do you think Colin Kaepernick's being blackballed? We haven't asked you that question. Give us a call, 401-426-3343. Give us your view. You don't have to agree with what I'm saying, but we'd love to play that counter opinion if you got one. So call us again, 401-426-3343 or 401-426-EDGE. Also, we have Edge of Sports t-shirts. They're awesome. You should get one. Go to edgeofsports.com. There's a link on the right banner. Bam. Click. Get it. You got it. Also, we have a new Twitter feed, at Edge of Sports Pod. Follow it. Get the latest news about the podcast and what we are doing because we got big plans. Yo, thanks to everybody for listening to us on the Edge of Sports Podcast. For my co-producers, David Tigaboo and Daniel Baker, stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.